Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. So we're continuing on through a series that we're in called Mission Redemption. Uh, and if you don't kind of know the tracking timeline that we're in, we're, we're really, we started in, in John chapter 15 and we're following up until the crucifixion, uh, which ultimately lead us to Easter. And so the vision moving forward for the entire series really is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's the passion that drove him to the cross. And where we are today, we're going to be in John chapter 16. I don't really have like a, a fun intro, uh, but we're going to be in John chapter 16. Uh, and just to, to set the tone a little bit, we are literally hours out from Jesus being betrayed and taken into captivity, and then the next day executed by Roman crucifixion. And so we're at Jesus' final hours with his disciples. And so he's sitting with them, and he's sharing with him. I mean, imagine for a second that you are with someone you love. Parents, you're with your children, right? Uh, and, and you have a few hours left before you're going to be removed from their life. And so you have a final message to give. Like that's such an incentive, especially for someone who does preaching, you know, to, to try and imagine that today might be my last day to live and that I would want to leave you guys with the most important thing I can think of. And so Jesus is fixing to leave them. He's leaving them ultimately with this, this final message. And what he doesn't leave them with he doesn't leave them with, I'm fixing to go, but you guys got this. Right? He doesn't leave them with a motivational speech. He doesn't leave them with self-help and self-empowerment. He leaves them with something far greater. Far greater. And so let me go ahead and start our big idea for today. Uh, and it's just very blunt. I'm just going to let you know. Uh, our big idea is this. Without the Holy Spirit, we are dead in sin. Right? I know it's, it's blunt. It's very exclusive. But it's incredibly true. That if we do not have the abiding Holy Spirit, we remain dead in the condition of sin. Let's consider that a thesis statement, right? So I want to build my argument for that then. And so we're going to move in, John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15, uh, and I'm going to break it into three parts, right? Uh, all of this being about the Holy Spirit, and what we're going to look at with these three parts is we're going to look at why do we need the Spirit, one, two, what is it that the Spirit's going to do, and then three, what does it look like to walk with Him, right? Is He just this nebulous force within us that we just kind of float about life or do, do we have something to partake do we have a responsibility along with him and so our first point we'll look at verses 5 through 7 john chapter 16 john writing jesus speaking says this he says but now i jesus am going away to the one who sent me and not one of you is asking me where i'm going Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, 
then I'll send him to you. Now, the concept of advocate, if you don't know, it's, it, there's a, a whole lot of synonyms there. Uh, the most common is helper, right? The helper, which is a really interesting term for the Holy Spirit, personally, because the Holy Spirit is one of the, of the, of the triune members of God, which means he's equal and eternal and all-powerful with the, with the Godhead, right? And yet, we get to call him helper, that shows such a humble character of the person of God that the uncreated would come down to the creature to be called helper. But I find it also very interesting that Jesus says that he's going to go away and that that's better for them. That's hard for me to comprehend. I'm just going to be really honest. Like To think Jesus going away is better it's difficult because oftentimes what I want is I want Jesus right here, right? Let me know about this decision I'm making, whether it's going to be successful, whether it's fruitful. What's the outcome going to be like? But in reality, what I don't actually want is Jesus right there. I just want to know that what I'm going to do is successful and that I have a little bit of control. And so really that's more idolatry than it is worship. But oftentimes it's hard for me to grasp someone going, hey, it's better that I go. I would rather my Lord be sitting here physical so I can tangibly touch and speak with him and know but Jesus says it's better that I go away and so let me tell you first what that insinuates and it's something very important to our culture Jesus did not come to be a mere example for how you should live your life that's something that we tend to think right we, and, and I'll be honest even though we may not say it maybe you know the theological lingo but how often is it that we really just imagine Jesus came 2,000 years ago to show us an example of how life should be lived and then we're just supposed to do it? And I'll say this, if that's really the case, that is the most cruel joke to ever pull on humanity. Right? Because Jesus didn't make mistakes. There's no room for it. There's no room for error if that's the case. If he's just our example, then we're doomed to one of two things. We're doomed to our pride or we're doomed to our despair. You're doomed to your pride because you really think you're good enough and you're not understanding the equality and the, the essence of what Jesus really is and how he really lived. Or you realize there is absolutely no way and so you just throw up your hands and quit and sit in the dust. Now I'll be very honest, Jesus did come as an example. But more than that, he came as a savior. Because the idea of Jesus just being an example and just learning lessons of life off of Jesus, it doesn't help as much. As I told you before in the big idea, without the Holy Spirit, we're dead in sin. Here's where I gather that is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this. He says, once, now this is speaking to a church, a group of people who now have the Spirit of God. Once, previously, you were dead because of your disobedience your many sins. You were dead. Paul doesn't say you were half alive. Paul doesn't say you were trying to get there. He says you're dead. And let me, I don't know, if, I've never been dead. I don't know if any of you have. But I know one thing about dead people. They have no register as to what is going on externally. Right? If you were laying up here dead right now, and I didn't like what you were wearing, 
to say, hey, you should really change your clothes wouldn't do you any good. And so just calling you to forms of conformity doesn't change you. It's what Jesus calls whitewashed tombs, right? We're filled with uncleanness on the inside, but we pretty ourselves up really well. If we're dead in sin, which is the biblical description, then what we need is to be made alive. Not just taught how to live better. We don't just need an example. We need resuscitation. Jesus says this in John chapter 8, verse 34. He says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He doesn't say everyone who sins moderately sins. In fact, his point isn't that one day you sinned and became a slave, but he's saying if you sin, it's because of this reason, because you're a slave to it. Sin always beckoning and calling for its control over you. And when we're dead in it, when we're slaves to sin, it means that we don't hear another voice of another master calling us any which direction. We simply do what sin tells us to do because it's all we know. There's no recognition of anything outside of that. And so what we need is more than an example. We need a Savior. We need a Lord. We need the Holy Spirit of God to come into our lives and make us alive. It's what we call, uh, in a, in a uh, theological term, it's called regeneration. To be made new. Uh, Ezekiel wrote about it in the Old Testament. God speaking through him. Ezekiel says this, he says, and I, God speaking, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'll come down and write the laws in a better way for you to understand. He doesn't say, I'll come down and give you an example because he understands something. We have a stony and stubborn, non-responsive heart, and we do not want to obey God. According to Romans 8, 7, in our natural state, we are hostile against the law of God, and we cannot submit to it. And so what we need is we need the Spirit of God who comes in, and He causes us. He brings us to life so that we would walk according to God's regulations and be careful to observe his laws. He has to bring us to life first, because if he doesn't, it won't work. Second point, what will the Spirit do? Now, I know some of you are like, I feel like we just talked about what the Spirit will do, but let's look at what Jesus is saying specifically uh, in verses 8 through 11. He says, and when he, the Spirit, the Helper, when he comes, he'll convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. That's three sermons in and of itself. I'm just going to let you know. And so let me try to nutshell this as best as I possibly can. He'll convict the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. What I, what I find so interesting is when Jesus gives explanation 
and he says that he'll convict the world of sin, he does not say he'll convict the world of sin. Their breaking of the law, their sexual immorality, their cussing and drunkenness. He doesn't, it's funny because he says he'll convict them of sin, but he never mentions a single law broken. But he says when they're convicted of sin, it will be because they do not believe in me, which means in the end, on the day of judgment, there will be two camps of people, not lawbreakers and law abiders, because we're all lawbreakers, believers and unbelievers. And the sin by which we will be condemned will be the sin for not believing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Lord and Savior of the world. Because you have to keep something in mind. God never gave you the law so that you'd be saved. I've taught this before, but Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, God gave you the law so that you would know that you're sinful. Because moral conformity can't save you. You need a savior. Secondly, he says, that he'll convict us of righteousness because Jesus goes to the Father. And let me just say this. This is like a mine of information, but I need to try and sum this up as, as quickly as possible. When Jesus says, you will have righteousness because I go to the Father, that seems like a very odd statement, but we have to understand something. In reality, there are two people in the history of mankind who have actually truly affected the condition of mankind. The first man, Adam. The first man ever created. Adam was created as the federal head, the representation of mankind. And the way that things worked when God created the order, whatever Adam did would affect all who came after him. And as you know the story, what Adam did was he rebelled against God in disobedience. And so what happened due to Adam's disobedience is that same condition of disobedience, which is what we call sin, that same condition of disobedience is passed down to all who came after him. Every single person born of the seed of man is born into a condition of sin. Andy Stanley said this quite possibly the best way I've ever heard my entire life. He said, sin is not just a verb. It is not only an action, but it is also a noun. It is a condition and a state that we are in. And because we are in that condition, we live out the action of sin. Adam ushered in sin and death into the human race. But according to Romans 5, Adam was only a type of the one who was to come. He was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the true and better Adam. That where Adam failed miserably in obedience to God, Jesus Christ lived perfectly in obedience to God. Where Adam condemned the whole human race under sin and death, attributing his sinful nature to us. Jesus went to the cross, taking the death that Adam was promised, though he never got it, and in doing so, attributed to us his perfect righteousness. 
You see, Jesus' ascension to the Father, when he says, you'll receive righteousness because I go to the Father, to get to the Father, he would first have to go through death, which is our death, the death that Adam earned. But in his resurrection, it would vindicate that the life he lived was imperfection and the death he died was substitutionary. And so the death that Jesus died wasn't his own death due to his own sin, but for the sin of the world. And his ascension, his resurrection from the grave is evidence that his life was in perfect righteousness with God. And if he died a substitutionary death, that means he died for us. And he gives to us his perfect righteousness. And so it's by his ascension to the Father, by his resurrection, that we can receive the free gift of righteousness. Then thirdly, judgment. But it's funny, when he talks about judgment, he says judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And that one took me a minute until I realized Ultimately, the rule, the reign of Satan, the serpent from Genesis 3, who God promised he would send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, destroy his power, at his judgment, which is at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the serpent lost his power of sin and death, and Jesus Christ overcame. You see, Jesus, in his death and resurrection, made a public spectacle of the defeat of Satan the defeat of sin, and the defeat of death. Jesus overcame. And in doing so, shows that the reign of Satan is no longer. And it's made evident. So that all those who choose to follow in the path of disobedience have to know what direction they're going as well is right along with the one who's already been defeated, who's been destroyed. And at the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul says this, speaking of people, again, very familiar language, uh, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature has not yet been cut away, had not yet been cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ by giving you the Holy Spirit, for he, he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The cross was a symbol of the victory of the true king, but also the defeat of the tyrannic ruler who's been oppressing mankind. Third point, what does it mean to walk with the Spirit? Verses 12 through 15 of John 16 says this, there's so much more that I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he'll tell you what he's heard. He will not tell you about the future, or he will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. 
Jesus is telling him, he's saying, listen, there's, there's a teaching that you're not ready to bear. You can't even hear it yet. And I'll be honest, I remember when I first started reading the scriptures after I was born again, being so baffled that there was things the disciples didn't get, right? You're reading the gospels and you're like, how do you not get that? But then you remember they didn't have the spirit yet, right? We sit in a new era where we've been filled with the spirit of God, understanding some of these mysteries of the kingdom. They couldn't see it. They were still blind to it. And Jesus is like, there's a time that'll come. And he's like patting little children on the head. Just wait. And so right here, he says, there's something I can't teach you yet, though I want to, because you've yet to have the Spirit. But when he comes, when the Helper comes, he will guide you into all truth. That brings us back to Ezekiel, right? That he's going to cause us to walk in the, in the regulations of God. Jeremiah said it a little bit differently. Jeremiah 31, 33. I, God, will put my instructions deep within them. And I'll write them on their hearts. The Spirit doesn't just come and illuminate words on a page. But He engraves it on the deepest, most core part of our being, on our hearts. He changes us at a level so deep that we can't even fathom our own personality. That's why David, in Psalm 51, you know, it's the, the, the psalm that he wrote after committing adultery and murder. Uh, he wrote this, this song, of, song of contrition uh, for forgiveness, and he says to God, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. In other words, God is not interested in fake it till you make it. He's not interested in that. He sees straight through it. All things lay naked and exposed before him. And remember something. According to 1 Samuel, God's not judging just the action, but the motive of the heart. And so if the heart hasn't been made new, then nothing else matters. And so the Spirit establishes truth in the core of our being. Not even, if you think John chapter 4, the, the, the passage of the Samaritan woman at the well, you remember what she, when she finally realizes that Jesus is a prophet, what does she say? She says, hey, wait a minute, your people say that we have to worship over on that mountain, but my people say that we worship over on this mountain, and Jesus is like, woman, you're at there's going to come a day when it's not going to matter where you worship. God is seeking something so utterly different. God is seeking. I remember Louis Giglio pointing this out. It, Jesus actually says the Father is looking for those. He's searching for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, the Spirit of God comes. He writes the truth of God on our hearts. And that develops and brings forth true worshipers, not just people who sing songs, but people who live a life after the heart of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this pastor Ed's like favorite verse. He reads it so often. I, I did an ESV for particular wording, but this is what Paul says. He says, Listen to the, to the particular word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
But what is our spiritual worship? According to verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What the Spirit does within us, that inner renewal. What is true in spiritual worship? It's being transformed by the renewing work that the Spirit of God has done within us. Listen, there is not Christianity without the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is essential to our faith. And so with that, how do we begin applying that? Well, the Spirit, the Spirit's work is all about putting the old you, the old sinful nature to death and constantly resurrecting that renewed creature within you. Right? So we have the process, or the, 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 we, have, we have regeneration, which is where you're born again, which the Holy Spirit does, not you. Remember what he says in Ezekiel 36, I will do it. But then following that, the process of sanctification, which is the Spirit of God in you putting to death the old sinful nature as he's bringing to life this new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new has begun. The Spirit makes us a new creation, but He doesn't... Do now, let me remind you of something also. This is important. I have a very addictive personality and it has destroyed me in the past with legitimate addiction. And one thing I know when it comes to addiction... Guilt is most often the trigger that drives you straight back into the destructive loop. How often for Christians do we know that we're called to a higher standard, but when we fail, we just drop in utter despair, right? Guilt just overrides, and so we go into these cycles of sinful conditions. But let me remind you of one other thing with the Holy Spirit. As we move toward this new creation that the Spirit's made us, he will also be always pointing you to Jesus Christ crucified on your behalf. That is one of the most important pieces of information that you could possibly have before you leave this room today is to always remember in all of your failure that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your guilt and your shame. He took your penalty so that you could be made right in the eyes of God, not due to your performance, not due to your works, but only because Jesus Christ is your righteousness before God. So according to Hebrews 10, 14, by the, by the one sacrifice of Christ, we are forever perfected before him. Which means as many times as I fail in a day, my guilt is washed away because Christ took it upon himself. And so I will never stop. So the Spirit is always moving us forward. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, I know there's a lot of verses. I'm kind of sorry, but not. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. He says, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God. Let me give you two next steps 
that aren't going to seem much like next steps at all. First one, very simple. If you are not a believer, if you have yet to be born again, John chapter 3, verse 3, you must be born again. You, it, this is non-negotiable. This is, this is Jesus' basic teaching, and I know we live in a culture of good people, um, but in John 3, 3, probably the most morally successful human being in the entire first century, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, and not only a Pharisee, but according to Jesus himself, the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher, definite article, the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus, most morally perfect man of the day, comes to Jesus at night and says, good teacher, what would you, what, what's this teaching you have for us from God? And Jesus looks at him and says, truly I say unto you, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. If you're a morally good humanitarian person, that's fantastic, but before God, you have no right standing. It doesn't come by works. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. You must be born again. You have been born again. Walk in step with the Spirit. It's Galatians 5.16. Now, I understand. Here's what I know. That doesn't have handlebars on it, right? You're like, well, what do I do? I don't, I, like, Paul doesn't try and define it super hardcore. I'm not going to do any more than what Paul did. I'm just going to be honest. He's far more intellectually superior than me. But Paul says in Galatians 5.16 that if we walk in step with the Spirit, then we won't gratify the desires of the Spirit. If we walk in step with him, we won't gratify, or I'm sorry, if we walk in step with him, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature. To be walking in step with the Spirit is to be constantly renewed in your mind and to be letting that transform your attitudes and your thoughts. And this is where true peace and true confidence is found. It's so interesting because we're kind of coming out of this era that I don't really know when it began, maybe the late 19th century, uh, where everything was based on a sinner's prayer, right? There was a, I don't remember the guy's name, I'm not going to go into it, but he used to, late 19th century, he'd host these big revival meetings where he'd want the lighting and the music and all the, I don't know about lighting, but he'd want the music and everything so perfect because his goal would be to try and influence people's emotions to say this prayer. And I'm like, man, I'm not like anti-prayer. I think if you want to be saved, I think it definitely starts with praying to the Lord. You know, like I think it's a pretty impacting step. Uh, but I would also say this, if all of your salvation is based on a prayer, man, you're, there's not a whole lot of objective anything to that, right? There's not a whole lot of confidence. Like, did you mean it? Maybe you didn't mean it. What if it wasn't said right? You know, I feel like there's a lot of things that you go, what? Like, but when you base your salvation on having been born again, like that's very objective. The Spirit of God has come in your life and he has changed you. He has taken God from being concepts on a page to being a living being who's to be cherished and worshiped. Paul says this for those who have been born again. He says it doesn't matter whether a person's been circumcised or not. Really talking about the traditions of the law. He says that, that doesn't matter. He says what counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. That's the thing that matters. And then what follows that? May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They're the new people of God. 
Those who live by this principle, this principle that salvation is a matter of being made into a new creation, those people may the peace and mercy of God rest on them. That you know you've been born again. Philippians 1.6, Paul says this. He says, I, and I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God who began the work in you will bring it to pass. You want to talk about, I mean, peace surpassing to know that God began it and if he began it, he's going to finish it because if it's in my hands, I fail miserably. I promise. I promise I fail miserably. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. What does that really have to do with you? How much of that responsibility is in your hand? Here's what you need to know. He began a good work in you by filling you with his Holy Spirit. And if he began that good work in you by filling you with his Holy Spirit, he is most certainly going to bring it to pass. What's the evidence that you've been justified before God, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that you've been born again? Which means you're forever perfected, which means you're also in a process of being made godly. And so what do you do? You co-labor with the Spirit of God into your godly character. Don't grieve him, as Paul would say in Ephesians 5. Don't grieve him. His aim is for your good. And so be walking in step with him. And some of you are like, well, that seems a little nebulous. Like, how do I know what that looks like exactly? I can give you a very simple, clear-cut explanation. Does it align with God's word? Does it align with what Jesus teaches us? If it does, then it's from the Spirit. And if it doesn't, then it's not. The, the, the word of God is a confirmation that the spirit of God is working in us. This is the most awe-inspired way that you could possibly ever worship, right? Here's how I don't want any of you to leave this room. I do not want any of you leaving here hoping that maybe you can do it better. Because then you'll walk out of here praising yourself, looking to a future, more deified version of yourself. I'm hoping that when this is all said and done, you walk out of this room wanting to worship God, wanting to worship Christ, because he's the one that does all of this. And he's the one that wanted to do it so badly that he laid down his own life so that you could have it. So let's, quoting Matt Chandler, and let's get over ourselves and let's just celebrate Jesus. Because that's what the Holy Spirit would have us do. The more you're celebrating Jesus, the less you're going to be celebrating sin and pride and all these foolish things. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful 
that you did not just leave us with a message and philosophy of life. But you left us with teaching that is true, and then you imparted upon us your own spirit to bring that truth to life in our hearts. That your salvation is not a pseudo-salvation, but it is full. It is locked in. That when Christ spoke on that cross and said, it is finished, we can stand confident in that work that what he accomplished was accomplished for us. And so, Father, we praise you for your mercy and for your grace. We praise you that you send your Holy Spirit to abide in us, to transform us, to make us like you. And so I pray, Lord, that he would be recognized in our lives and that we would cherish him and that we would cultivate a relationship with him greater and greater for your name's sake. Lord, you shed your blood for this to happen. And I know not a drop of that blood will be shed in vain. So glorify your name. Amen. Y'all have a great week.